Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. You won't realize this, but I actually just recorded the Dream Farm podcast last night, but I want to do another one today because it's super windy outside, and what better day to do that than a day that I can't really do much other horsey stuff. So I've kind of been thinking about some of the issues in the horse world, and I wanted to do today's podcast on the topic of, like, industry-wide change in the horse world and why I think so many attitudes are really resistant towards that change um, and how we can kind of work on that and where some of that lack of desire to change comes from and like why it's so pervasive. So it's going to be kind of a broad topic, but when I get going, you'll understand what points I'm trying to make and where I'm going with this. Before I get there, I just wanted to again say that if anyone's interested in supporting the podcast or my other social media endeavors, you can do so by subscribing to my Patreon channel for as little as a dollar a month. Um, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s s-d-equus. That's a great way to support the channel, as is shopping my product line on milestoneequestrian.ca on the shop milestone page. Or you can check out my merch products at shopmilestoneequestrian.com. And all of those things help with all things related to putting out content on social media if I need any new like microphones, cameras, um, different types of things for different types of videos, and so on and so forth. It helps with the business development and the social media growth, so I really appreciate any and all support. Thank you so much. Um, we'll jump right back into this. And... Yeah, so basically what I wanted to talk about is kind of like my whole social platform, like I've been pretty outspoken on on a number of issues over the years and have been comfortable sharing my opinion, which honestly inevitably upsets a lot of people. Uh, it's not really something that I can prevent from happening because if you say things that are hard for people to hear, no matter how nicely you try to go about saying them, you're going to upset people, let alone if you're more blunt like I am and don't beat around the bush to the same extent as other people. And I've kind of hit a point in my life now with, like, the efforts that I've made to educate myself personally and, like, the work I've put in to undo the biases that I held in the horse world. I'm just not at a point in my life where I have patience to be, like, to deal with people who are in blatant denial of scientific fact and are seeking my support in their desire to do so, if that makes sense. This is a very specific type of person. Like, I'm talking people who come onto my content where I'm sharing, like, scientific research and uh, need for change in the horse industry for the betterment of horse welfare. And people will come on and they'll start arguing with me and trying to give, like, a bunch of different reasons why their horse is different than the general consensus of how horses think and need to be cared for. And they want support in that to basically have me be like, oh, yeah, you're totally right. This doesn't apply to your horse. You're doing awesome. And there's no welfare deficits associated with that type of care. And I'm not really willing to do that. Like, I'm not going to personally insult their care without knowing about it. But if they're being like, oh, my horse is stalled 24-7 and he's totally fine. I just reiterate the fact that, like, studies don't really show that that is possible. Like, that there is always physical and slash or psychological deficit when horses are forced to live that way. And people really don't like it because... The only reason they really do stuff like that is because they are insecure in their care. Because if they were secure in their care, they wouldn't need to argue with me to try to get me to agree with them. Like, the reason that they go about doing that is because they are insecure in their care. And if they can get me to agree that what they're doing is fine, it'll make themselves feel better about the greater insecurity that has been created by what I've posted. 
So I'm not personally willing to do that because it's not my job to help people feel comfortable in their delusion. Like, there's a reason why a lot of this new information makes people uncomfortable. And it's because deep down, there's parts of us that understand that it makes sense. And we start to kind of have the veil dropped from our eyes and to question a lot of things that we've been taught to never question in the horse world for years. And that is a really, really difficult spot to be in. Like, it's really hard to deal with that type of discomfort and it's like a really weird place to be because you're being pulled in two different directions and it's definitely not easy but like with that said no one owes it to you when you're in that state to agree with you if you don't have anything but anecdotes on your side like they don't owe that to you and if you need that reassurance that's not anyone else's problem except for yours and it's your job to figure out how to navigate that and how to deal with those hard emotions that are coming through, not anyone else's. So what I stand by is that it's not mean for me to stay firm in my views, especially when they're scientifically backed, and refuse to alter those moves on the basis of someone's personal anecdotes that in reality have no merit when we're arguing against scientific, scientific research. So... People feel like it's mean because it makes them uncomfortable and they don't like how it makes them feel, which again, it's valid to feel uncomfortable, but making your discomfort other people's problem when they're not doing anything wrong is the problem with this. And honestly, this exact attitude is so pervasive in the horse world and there's varying degrees of how far people will take this attitude, but it's so common and it's used to try to silence people and scare them into not speaking out on topics that need coverage and need to be talked about because people are made to feel like they're stupid or like they're being mean or like they're bullies for not going with the status quo and there's so much pressure from all different entities at all levels of the horse industry that it makes a lot of people not want to speak out because it's inherently uncomfortable to do so if you're going against popular opinion so that's one of the problems but yeah I just wanted to say like no one owes it to you to try to go out of their way to make you uncomfortable. I mean, to make you feel comfortable when the basis of your discomfort is simply due to your lack of desire to accept truths. That is your job to navigate that. No one owes it to you to make that more comfortable for you, especially when they're just sharing information. And one of the biggest problems in the horse world is how people react to the sharing of information. Like the sheer number of times I have simply just shared a study and been like, here's some information for you guys to read and been met with people who are pissed at me and they are like personally attacking me and coming at me with like low blow insults and just being rude when I have not personally attacked them. They simply feel attacked by the findings of the studies that I post because the problems in the studies apply to them and their care of their horse. So their way of dealing with that is by personally attacking me and shooting the messenger in a way because they're mad about the information that I've chosen to share with them and that it's come across their dashboard and that they've chosen to take the time to read it and it attacks their personal beliefs. Or in a lot of cases, they don't even open the article to read it. They just read the headline of the article and then get mad based off of that because they've already decided that they're not open to any information that conflicts with their views. And I say this because I'm intimately familiar with feeling that way because I used to do those exact things. So I personally think that I make people additionally uncomfortable because I am able to pinpoint where their emotions are coming from 
due to my past experience and doing so makes them even more uncomfortable because they don't want to hear why they feel the way they do and they don't want to come to terms with it. Like their entire reaction is rooted in their lack of desire to grow and change and their fear of that new information and how it might change the horse world as they know it. So they push against it and they seek to vilify and discredit the people sharing the information because they can't discredit the information itself because they don't have the means to do so with adequate information. So the easiest thing to do is to shoot the messenger, get mad at the people sharing it, and essentially try to, in a way, bully them into no longer being willing to share that information. Like, I've noticed, and like, again, this this is my perception, so I'm open to the fact that this might not actually be the exact motivation behind people's behaviors, but since I started going into this whole behavior science thing and like equine science and studying equine behavior I've kind of noticed a lot of parallels between when people react heavily in a certain way against me and what I posted just before that happened because for example there's a small minority of people who have been aware of my content for years and they hate what I post so much that they're willing to do anything they can to silence me, even if it's coming up with total bullshit stories about me personally attacking and trying to defame my character um, and spreading incorrect things about me. Like, it's been taken to the degree of people claiming that I've lied about my education because they looked at my Facebook profile and saw that I have, like, one of my old schools that I went to before I started doing the equine science stuff where I took journalism and the intent of that was to try to be like oh see look she's lying about her equine sciences education she definitely doesn't know what she's talking about because her Facebook profile says she went to KPU for journalism but they don't take the time to actually ask because I can easily prove my education because it is real but they choose to instead just take whatever like inch that they can find to try to discredit me and then run a mile with it. And I've noticed that a lot of these attempts to like attack and defame my character have been surrounding when I've shared stuff about like turnout and horses needing to be like socialized better or certain aspects of like equine welfare deficit in sport and what we should do to change that and it's largely me saying things that go against the popular opinion of the horse world and then that incites personal character attacks on me because they don't like what I'm saying and the interesting thing with that is that my character is being attacked because what I've said has made them uncomfortable and they feel threatened, but then their response is to actually make that attack so much more personal and come after me as a person because of information that I'm putting out that was studied and produced by people other than myself, that pe by people who are much more experienced than myself. And I find that rather interesting. <laughs> it's a really interesting response. And... That response says way more about those people than it says about myself because even in the event that like I miss and I say the wrong thing and I'm actually wrong about something and that the studies come out as being false down the months, days, or years, or whatever, whatever, my intent in sharing that information is to improve the lives of horses and if it by chance ends up being false, at that point I will own my mistake and I will accept what the new information says. But if that doesn't happen, I'm not going to live my life in accordance with the potential for that to happen. And what I find is that a lot of these people who don't want to acknowledge new research on horses and what it demands in terms of change for our sport, 
they really want to lay into what they've already done and continue doing it until it is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, which makes no sense because if most of the research is all pointing in a singular direction and there's very little proving like wherever they stand on that spectrum, continuing to stand there despite all of the stacking evidence showing that that's not necessarily the most accurate place to be is being stubborn at the expense of your horse. And that's honestly why I speak out so much because I was stubborn at the expense of my horses for so many years and I deeply regret it. I wish I made changes sooner because I would be further ahead now. And in using my platforms and saying the things that I do, what I'm essentially trying to do is help other people to be empowered to make those changes sooner than I was able to and not stay locked down in that denial to the detriment of their horse for as long as I did. And unfortunately for me, a lot of people take my outspokenness as a desire for me to always be right and to be like a know-it-all and to like one-up them and just like prove I'm better than them, which again, I can understand why people feel that way because I did feel that way initially as well. And there's still some circumstances where I might also feel that way even still. But their feelings again, in my opinion, say more about their state of mind and their insecurities than they do of me myself. Because I'm not trying to be better than anyone. I'm trying to improve the horse world. Like, there's still aspects of my horse care, even as I have improved it, that aren't at their most perfect, ideal situation. Like, most aspects of my care have room for improvement, if not all of them. But I'm doing the best that I can with the resources I have, and the knowledge that I have now. So it's not really about trying to be better than everyone else so much as trying to encourage the horse industry to move in the direction of change that is needed and to try to empower more people to understand the fact that you can acknowledge your shortcomings and care for your horse without being a bad horse owner. In fact, the ability to acknowledge where your care might be lacking and where it can be enriched, if anything, makes you a better horse owner because it is very hard to improve the life of an animal if you're in denial that it needs improvement. Like, if you're in denial that anything you're doing with your horse could possibly result in negative welfare, you're not going to be working as hard to improve their welfare because you're in denial that there's an, an issue in the first place. And that's the problem. Like, there can be people who still keep their horses in a stalled lifestyle where they're spending way more time in the stall than what is ideal. But if they're aware of the fact that that comes with increased physical and mental health risks, they're more likely to be empowered to try to do as much as they can to enrich that horse's lifestyle immediately in ways they can. And that can look like getting them more stall toys, getting them slow feed nets and putting them around the corners of the stall to encourage the horse to move as much as they can in a stall. Or it can look like taking them for lengthy walks or hacks to allow them to like sniff and like forage and wander around and get the exercise and making more of an effort to do that each day and spend a lot of time having them walking since they don't get the same ability to do so in a stall. So it's not necessarily about completely uprooting the care that you offer and like up and moving from the situation you're in because that's not always practical. But it's the understanding of where care is lacking and where you can improve it. And if you're in a situation where you cannot immediately improve it, understanding the risks that come with it and not being in denial of them. Because if you understand the risks, you're also more likely to be really mindful of subtle changes in the horse's behavior that might indicate they're 
having a mild colic episode and it'll allow you to catch those things earlier. So it's really about not being in denial of like certain care practices and how they contribute to problems that we see in horses. It's not necessarily about completely uprooting your care to model it to the exact perfection of what the lowest risk care is because obviously in the modern world, depending on where you live, that's not always feasible. But I don't think that the lack of ability to immediately change the horse's situation needs to be paired with the lack of desire to actually acknowledge horse care improvement and like horse welfare and equine science and behavior science and use it in your application and handling of your horse. Like even if it's as simple as acknowledging the fact that lack of ability to self-exercise makes horses typically more nervous and excitable and high strung and the owner being mindful of this when they're working with their horse so that they're not getting mad at them and punishing them when they're more reactive. Even something as simple as that will better the welfare of the horse and it all starts with the person's acceptance that their care is imperfect and that there's room for improvement and even if they can't improve it immediately in the horse's life, they can improve it by how they handle the horse's behavioral issues that are the direct result of the management protocols. So that's really what it's all about is like no one is expected to achieve perfection and like when I share stuff about stalling and turnout even if I never actually say your horse should be turned out 24-7 simply because my horses are people will assume that is what I'm saying and they'll be like well not everyone can have their horse out 24-7 we board and they'll try to feed me all of these justifications for their horse's care when I never asked for them and I'm not demanding that of them. Like, I'm not judging them for not modeling my exact care practices. But it's the sharing of information that regardless of how you care for your horse, it will help you better the life of your horse because you're understanding them better and you are being mindful of modern research and how it applies to your horse. And simply being open to hearing that research, even if you're limited as a boarder with what you can provide for your horse, by being open to hearing it and understanding it and learning and growing with your practices because of that research, you can help educate the rest of the horse industry, which will in turn help encourage boarding facilities to have better setups for horse lifestyles and to start making the improvements that would make it easier for people like you as a boarder to provide for their horses what they would like to. So there's truly no loss. And being aware of like potential deficits in care with like certain training and management practices, it's not saying that you're a bad horse owner. It's just being mindful of how the modern lifestyle can impact a horse. Like I like in a perfect world, like stabling a horse for a weekend at a show, it's not the greatest thing for them. It's going to be more stressful. But if you're aware of the fact that it's like that, you can do stuff like giving them preventative ulcer treatment, taking them for more walks. Uh, renting a paddock if you have the funds to do so at a show or hauling them in if you're close enough and not stabling for the weekend. Simply being mindful of the impact it has on your horse allows you to make more choices or to be aware of what choices you have to make the situation easier for them. And unfortunately, a lot of people take like the talks of like improving horse welfare and training and management as like a whole like as a desire to be superior to one another because I think this stems from the fact that horse people are perpetually in competition with each other 
even when literally no one is competing, no one signed up to compete, they're simply just existing with their horse. People in the horse world are perpetually looking to compare themselves to each other and try to beat each other in terms of like the management they offer for their horses, the training they offer for their horses, how high they jump, how well they can ride. There's all these little factors that people are constantly comparing to one another and they're always trying to rise on top. It's viewed as like a competition rather than like a community where you ha have something to learn from almost everyone in it, even if what you're learning is what not to do. But we've been taught to constantly compare ourselves to each other and we've also been like raised and trained in such a way where there's so much heavy criticism and where we're often punished for doing the wrong thing, where there's this desire to get reassurance from other people and like people at the upper levels and people with like a perceived amount of like a great amount of experience that we want to do the things that will get us the most attention and reward and admiration and unfortunately a lot of those things aren't correlated with positive horse welfare like for example the vast majority of upper level horses do not get enough turnout and socialization this is justified on the basis that they are expensive and that they need to be protected as the investments that they are. But like horses don't know their price tag. So the fact that they are valuable to us as humans should have no basis on what we deprive of them deprive them of in their regular care, especially if what we are depriving them of is actually healthier for them. Their price tag is irrelevant. It shouldn't be factored in with that because horses don't know their value. So using value to justify it is simply for human benefit and it's a selfish justification that should never be brought about to justify welfare. But that's what we see people doing and when you see masses of people at the upper levels of sport doing these unethical things and being rewarded and applauded for it, it teaches everyone else within the sport because we're taught and groomed to kind of look up to these upper level riders and view them as like staples and like of the of the equestrian world and put them on such a pedestal that we assume that because of the level they're at they're inherently ethical and this skews the entire perception of what good horse care looks like and it honestly takes a lot of elitist undertones because a lot of the riders at the upper levels are there because they have the finances to be there. It's not always necessarily simply correlated to talent. Like you need to have the money to be able to afford to show in the first place and it's very hard to do that if you don't come from a background of having like a decent financial background or a family who has a decent amount of money to put you in horse sports in the first place but then in addition to that also afford to help you compete. So those elitist undertones are seen in what we view as ethical and good care practices for horses. We see this in people looking at like fancy barns with like beautiful stained wood stalls and like wrought iron barns and box stalls with the walls all the way up so that the horses can't see each other. If they're really fancy looking in open air, people assume that they are better because we like the look of them better because they're associated with high class barns and high class riders. And in the pursuit of trying to like appeal to the rider and like make things aesthetically pleasing, what the horse actually needs and wants has largely been forgotten. And people will use human preferences to justify what their horse likes. And then the behavioral issues that come with these forced practices that horses have to exist in because we make them, we then use to also justify why they like that form of care. So for example, a horse who has been understimulated, chronically understimulated their entire life and essentially just grown up in a box stall with very little turnout 
and hasn't been able to really socialize with another horse since being weaned from their dam. If that horse then shows anxiety being turned out and runs around or is dangerous or is aggressive to other horses because they are afraid of other horses due to not being socialized, that is used as a reason why horses, some horses don't like other horses or why they can't be turned out. Instead of being viewed as like an incredibly disordered behavior that's a direct result of the care practice that necessitated them adopting those types of behaviors. And we also see like with like upper level riders promoting these types of care practices and like different types of training practices and management practices for horses, people want to model their care because they view them as the best of the best because they're at the top of the sport. So there's this assumption that these people are inherently more ethical because we assume that if they weren't ethical, they wouldn't be allowed to rise to the level that they do. But there's literally no proof that that's a thing. In fact, I would argue at the upper levels of most horse sports, the abuse is actually worse than what you would find with the general pleasure rider or someone who's not prioritizing showing like there's way more emphasis put on doing whatever is wanted for the person and justifying that the horse likes it based off of what the person's goals and desires are then there is emphasis on like how the horse feels about things like stress behaviors are constantly labeled as like the horse's excitement or their preference and horses being like cranky and aggressive towards people are viewed as normal behaviors and just like a horse being grumpy or like a personality trait when horses are generally really passive animals and don't really like to be aggressive so the amount of aggression that we see from them in sport is pretty abnormal but it's all used as just a reason why this is normal because it's seen at such high instances at the top levels of sport and then it's viewed as like oh well these horses are getting the most money spent on them and the most expensive care but people fail to realize that the expensive care that these horses are getting is all catered towards the people it's not about what the horse wants best or what is healthier for the horse it is about what is most convenient um preferable and wanted by the people in that horse's life. It's not about what the horse actually wants, but we kind of anthropomorphize horses at these levels and try to make it out to be that the horses like what the humans have picked for them for their lifestyles and training because the person doesn't want to come to terms with the fact that the horse might not actually be on board with all the things that are happening to them. And the reason why I brought up like the elitist component of this is that I find that upper level sports and like riders at the top levels or like mid top levels competitive riders in general they have skewed the narrative to make it out to be that horses who are sitting in a field with other horses and not being exercised every day and like micromanaged and handled all the time they've skewed the narrative to make it out to be like those horses are the neglected ones because they're getting muddy and dirty and they're playing with other horses and getting marked up from running past trees and different types of foliage or playing with horses and not looking like super clean and pretty and meticulous and not having a quote-unquote cozy warm well-bedded stall but instead having access to like natural shelter like trees or big like open sheds to go under for shelter upper level riders and competitive riders have skewed the idea that those horses existing outside 24 7 are more mistreated because they're not having their lifestyle and diet and care practices 
micromanaged to the same degree that we see in competition horses where if they do go outside they're brought in every day at the same time they're fed every day at the same time there's set hay feedings they're blanketed as soon as it gets even the least bit cold if there's a droplet of rain that falls out of the sky they have to have their rain sheet they have like five different weights of blankets to put on them even if they're not clipped and there's just practice there's care practices where the horses like every movement in life is micromanaged and they created the idea that horses prefer that micromanagement over the ability to live like an autonomous lifestyle where they can hang out and play with other horses and roll in the mud and wander around and they view that horses who are getting less human intervention are neglected despite all of the research we have showing that that's not the case horses who have the autonomy to roam with other horses forage and have fun do not feel neglected more of their needs are met provided they have water food shelter friends freedom forage like look up the five basic freedoms of animal welfare and you'll find that the vast majority of upper level horses will not have all five of these freedoms met because the freedom to express natural behavior and the freedom from distress are almost never met because they don't have the freedom to practice natural herd behaviors or to interact with other horses because it's viewed as too risky to allow them to do that. So those freedoms are removed by the decision of the human being because they decide that it's too risky. And all of the risks that we look at in terms of depriving horses of these basic needs that we know make them healthier the risks are all related to loss of use for the person. A horse is not going to care if they don't get to compete in the meter 60 jumpers anymore so long as they're comfortable and can exist in a field and be in retirement. But the person will care. So the fact that the person cares very much is then reflected onto the horse and used to portray the horse's wants and needs despite the fact that it is largely rooted in the selfishness on the person's part to want to compete the horse. And again, it's not always a bad thing to be selfish. Like competition in itself is mostly for human enjoyment and benefit. So it's a selfish move. But there's ways to do that while still considering your horse. But it doesn't start with just drawing out the narrative that your horse loves competing and showing so much that they'd prefer that to being able to do regular horse things, despite all the studies depicting that that's not the case. So it's okay to want to do things for yourself and to use your horse for sport, but we really need to be careful on to what extent we're going to justify certain care practices and make it out to be like we're doing it for the betterment of our horse's welfare when that's almost never the case. Like, it sucks to have a horse that you can no longer compete due to injury, but honestly speaking, the vast majority of competition horses who sustain career-ending injuries usually sustain those injuries from competition or from training. It's not from existing as a natural horse in turnout because there are literally studies that show that horses who are stalled more are, are at greater risk of soft tissue injury, which if you think about it makes total sense. If we as human athletes sat around in a tiny little room and barely moved around all day and then we're suddenly just taken out to do intensive exercise once a day, we'd be more likely to injure ourselves because we're not using our soft tissues and bones all the time. We're sitting around and we're losing athleticism in doing that. And we're also losing flexibility and suppleness in doing that because we're just sitting around. And when you couple that with higher amounts of stress, in addition to the lack of ability to move around, 
It also means that you're going to be carrying chronic stress around. And we all know as humans how stress can impact the body. Anyone with an anxiety disorder can tell you how many physical health symptoms there are that come with anxiety disorders, like stomach issues, like IBS, headaches, teeth grinding, and dentition issues from clenching your jaw, um, panic attacks, sweating too much, fidgeting all the time, literally losing weight from fidgeting so much. Like, there's no shortage of bad outcomes from, like, anxious, stressy behaviors that you use to cope with chronic anxiety and stress. So, the same can be said with horses, even when you don't, when you're not factoring in the actual detriment that sitting still for so long has for a species that's intended to move as much as a horse. So, it's really important that we learn how to separate, like, our goals as humans and our desires as humans from, like, what a horse actually wants, because... It's one thing to just be like, yeah, I want to compete and I like competing my horse and competition is important to me. Okay, that's fine. But when you start to try to make your horse's needs align with yours, it's always going to be a situation where you're justifying things for your own benefit perpetually because your desires are what you're generally using to justify what your horse wants. So, your horse never really gets to have a voice because their voice is contingent on your wants and needs and what you want to do with them. So, yeah, like, it's very anthropomorphic and it's also extremely elitist because a lot of these care practices that we see in competitive show horses are associated with more expensive care and the cost of the care is used to justify the quality of it when that's not the case. Like, you can spend $3,000 a month on board, but if your horse is spending 20 hours a day in a stall, it's not going to be superior to $300 a month board out on field in a group turnout situation. Um, the, the general, like, amenities for a person might be nicer because you'll probably have a big, nice indoor and a fancy barn to tack them up in, but again, those are catered towards the human desires and wants. It's not catered towards what the horse actually needs. So that's the key takeaway. And it's unfortunate that there's such elitist undertones when we're talking about horse care because it's used to try to criticize and demean people who are actually taking better care of their horses because their care is cheaper or the horses get dirtier or there's more mud. But the horses have a way more enriching lifestyle. They actually get to have autonomy. They actually get to interact with other horses. And they actually get the ability to self-exercise. The facility itself just isn't as fancy looking to the human eye. But the horse has more of their needs met. And that's why we need to start to do away with that elitist mindset. Because not only does it silence people who are doing the right things for their horses and taking good care of them and make them feel like they're less a part of the horse world or less of an equestrian because they don't have the same, like, showboaty, like, lifestyle as, like, the upper-level competitor where they can show off how fancy their barn is or all of these expensive treatments that they do for their horse. But the thing is, they generally need to do less expensive treatments because they don't need Cairo for their horse all the time because their horse is actually getting to self-exercise and build muscle in turnout. So they're not chronically stressed and uncomfortable in the same way. So they don't need to put as much money into that. In addition to that, they might not need to spend as much on joint injections and stuff because their horse is arguably healthier from getting to exercise and function in a normal way. So... Spending lots on your horse and giving them lots of different types of treatments doesn't necessarily mean they're better cared for. It just means you're spending lots of money. 
And we really need to be careful on justifying the quality of care based off of money spent because a lot of the most expensive horses have the poorest welfare. Like, look at all these million-dollar racehorses who, for the entire racing season in North America, are, are existing in a stall when they're not in training. Sure, they get a lot of expensive food and, like, drugs and stuff pumped into them, but they're not being better cared for than the dinky little, like, beginner riding pony who lives out on 20 acres and comes in three times a week to pack around his toddler. Like, the racehorses are more expensive, yes, there's more money in their care, but their welfare is not better. They just have more money being pumped into them. But the fixation on where that money goes is all about what benefits the people the most and what benefits the desired use of the horse the most. Not what is most best for the horse or what is most ethical and fair to the horse. And that's why we can't use these standards to try to measure horse welfare. Because all of these standards have been set by people and they're rooted in our anthropomorphic view of what horses need. And that's especially problematic when growing up so many of us are taught to normalize stress behaviors in horses and view them as normal behaviors, in addition to being taught that horses like being in stalls and that this is normal care for them. Like, for years of my life growing up as an equestrian, I literally didn't even know that horses needed to have friends or that they needed a lot of space because I wasn't taught it. It was in my trainer's best interest to not teach me that if they even knew that themselves because their care didn't model that. So teaching me the right way would be insulting their own care and having to come to terms with the shortcomings in their care. So I was never taught that. So it's very easy to go down that road and have that type of mindset. And it's a lot harder to change it because you're not encouraged to be the progressive welfare first type of person because we are taught that good welfare for horses is fundamentally different than what it actually is. We're taught to normalize stress behaviors or to view them as excitement or happiness for horses when that's not the case. So it's really hard for people to undo all that and come to terms with the degree of misinformation and indoctrination that horse people are subjected to. And it's really unfortunate because honestly, like, that anger that they feel with being taught the wrong way is often channeled towards the people who are trying to educate and change the horse world so that less people are taught all of this misinformation instead of the people who taught them the wrong way. And I can speak for myself, too, in saying this, that, like, when I was initially met with information that was hard to take in, my anger was directed at the people sharing the information that was hard for me to listen to, not those who gave me the education that I had and set me on a path that was fundamentally different from what is actually true. And I think that's a big thing in us for equestrians is when you feel frustrated or angry or you're met with information that makes you uncomfortable, instead of being mad at the people sharing it, first look into the validity of the information. And secondly, if it's valid but it conflicts with, with what you've known, Instead of getting mad at the information itself or the person who chose to share it, be angry with the fact that the horse industry is in such a state that you were even led astray to the degree that you were without being aware of it. Because that means that there's a huge demographic of people within this industry that are all sharing misinformation, generally speaking, without being aware of it at all. And that means that there's a huge amount of work to do to undo that. And in order to prevent people from being in the same situation as you, where they're suddenly having to undo and relearn all of these normalized bad care practices, 
the only way we can stop people from meeting that same fate is by changing the status quo and really making an effort to re-educate the population of horse people. Because re-educating people is way harder than just teaching them correctly from the get-go. And that's why we have so many horse people who are so rooted in their, like, outdated traditional beliefs because they've spent decades putting time into believing those things and training horses in this way and having to relearn all of that is an incredibly frustrating and scary thought because you've put years into thinking that you knew something and thinking that you're getting more experience and that you're becoming a better horse person only to find out that so much of what you've learned is fundamentally wrong. And this isn't even to say that you should be mad at your previous instructors. Like, you can be angry at the fact that they didn't necessarily know what they were teaching you and that they were enabled in being able to give professional services because of, like, how certifications and being able to coach people professionally works in the horse world. You can be angry about that. But most of these instructors are coming from the same place where they were initially taught by someone who also taught them that all these things were okay. So they're merely modeling what they've been taught. And it's still their responsibility to continue their education and be open to learning new things and bettering their horsemanship. That is absolutely still their responsibility, especially once all these people are adults. So there is still some blame to put on them because they could have learned where they were going wrong. But the problem is, is that if everyone's telling you that these things, that this is just the way things are and that this is the way things have always been and that this is how the horse world is, you don't even really know where to start in terms of looking for what is and isn't right or wrong because you're never really taught that there is an alternative. So it's really hard to come to terms with and it's also really hard to pull yourself out of that mindset and like the rabbit hole down to like bad horsemanship because it is so ingrained and pervasive in the industry that you literally have to work harder to move away from it than you do to have to be sucked into that and kind of snowball down that path. So it's really unfortunate because it's just generations and generations of people being taught the wrong thing and then they go about their horse care with good intentions and it's not that these people don't love their horses, they do but they've been taught how to love their horses in a fundamentally incorrect way. They've been taught that showing your love for your horse and taking care of them is something completely different than what it actually looks like to the horse. So we have all these horse-loving people who think they're doing what's best for their horse, but have been led astray due to the amount of misinformation in the industry. And then they react with frustration when they've when they're met with the idea that their horse could be suffering as a result of their care because they've just been trying to do their best this whole time. And then they get defensive and they don't want to believe it and they feel attacked and they feel like they're being unfairly criticized because when you've been taught your whole life that this is the way to do things and that it's okay and suddenly you're met with the idea that it's not, it feels like an attack and it feels unreasonable and it feels completely unfathomable to consider the idea that the horse world is this outdated and that there's this degree of misinformation. Like, it seems like that's not possible. And then it's easier to believe the idea that the people offering the information that conflicts with your beliefs are the ones who's in the wrong. So a lot of these people don't even want to look into new information because they've already decided that it's wrong because of how many people are teaching the wrong things as the right things and how ingrained it is in the industry. Like, it is so messed up when you start to kind of go down that rabbit hole and learn about all the things in horse care that have been known for decades and been well-researched for decades that just haven't changed and that people are still standing by because of tradition. Like, a good example for that 
would be the idea that horses need a stall or metal horseshoes, for example. There is decades old studies like from back in the 70s that are done on like thousands of cadaver horses where they found consistent evidence that open heeled metal horseshoes cause navicular and that navicular is secondary to damage to the deep digital flexor tendon. And the information and the research is quite solid, but it's been so buried and shrugged off because people want to continue with the tradition of just slapping shoes on their horse because they don't know of an other reasonable solution, but they're also not looking for one. So it's easier just to believe that it works because they've only known that as the way to make their horses sound rather than looking at all the factors that contribute to poor hoof health and unsoundness in horses because of how we care and manage them. So the shoes are viewed as a remedy for that rather than viewed as a cause for the overall picture where nutrition is also a role and also lack of movement and so on. Like there's many factors. But people are in denial of it because they don't see another solution and the amount of research showing these other solutions is oftentimes buried or not considered by the vast majority of people in the industry. Like we have upper level sport horses who are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars that are being shod in a way that shows clear damage to their hooves and clear dysfunction of how the hoof is intended to work. And if you actually look at like the physics behind how these feet hit the ground and how like a contracted heel impacts the hoof internally, it's pretty clear that the hooves are damaged, but we've been taught that an unhealthy hoof is a normal one. So no one knows how to look at it. And again, it goes back to that elitist component where people are like, oh, these upper level equestrians are spending like $400 to get their horses shod with the best farriers in the world. So it must be fine. But when the best farriers in the world are engaging in the same outdated practices that are all rooted in the same idea of slapping a shoe on for soundness, but not factoring in how that impacts the foot and how it increases the issues that they're trying to fix that cause unsoundness, then the best farriers in the world, once again, are well-intentioned people who have been misled by what is a very pervasive issue of misinformation on an industry-wide scale and a lack of desire to sway from tradition because people really lay into what they've been most comfortable with and what they've been taught is the right way to do things. So we can't look at people who are at the top of the sport and use them as an example for what good horsemanship is because the fact of the matter is the horse industry is fundamentally behind in terms of moving with the times and developing horse care in a way that is ethical and fair to the horse because there is so much tradition and so much stubbornness that people really dig their heels in and they use their really big platforms as like an upper level rider or trainer or top level farrier to discredit information that is actually more credible than what they are doing. They use their platforms to speak out against it because considering it would mean completely having to alter the way they've always been taught to view the horse world. So it's easier to discredit it and be insistent that it's wrong than it is to welcome it and be faced with the idea of having to completely relearn your practice as a farrier or completely relearn your practice as a trainer and adopt more ethical training practices or completely revamp how you run your boarding facility so that it's more ethical. 
you're faced with a situation where you either have to continue doing what you're doing while being aware of the detriments of it, or you're faced with the idea that you have to basically completely re-educate yourself. So between those options, people often do the third option, which is being in denial and being insistent that all that information is wrong so that they can be like, I'm going about this the right way. I'm doing the right thing. This is totally fine. And it's a more comfortable option to choose, but the problem is, is it's more comfortable immediately. Like, the level of discomfort that you'll feel is going to be kind of background noise, and it'll just be buzzing in your ear, or it'll be, like, a little bit of twinge of anxiety or frustration and horse training that comes out in a different way that you don't necessarily associate with what it actually is. But it'll be a prolonged discomfort and lack of aligning with, like, who you are in your soul as a horse person and like how your horse reacts to things and a constant perpetual cycle of like unwanted behavior. So the discomfort might be lower grade than accepting new information that really challenges everything as you know it and completely rocks the world as you knew it as a horse person. The discomfort initially is much lower but you're gonna have to deal with it for such a prolonged period of time that it's honestly not worth it. And when you do eventually see the light and realize that so much of what you've been taught is wrong, it's oftentimes too late because you'll realize how many horses you've accidentally wronged in your pursuit of doing what everyone else did and just following what you thought was right and what you were taught was right, despite all the information showing that it's not. And it only prolongs the suffering that you cause yourself and your horses and it just makes it a perpetual cycle of frustration because your horse is frustrated and then you're frustrated and I really think people massively underestimate how many behavioral issues are solved even by changing like a few management practices let alone by like altering how we view hoof care and just completely reforming that like the amount of behavioral issues we'd wipe out off the bat if we improved management and like shoeing practices would be huge, astronomical. But it's one of those things that until you actually see it for yourself, it's a lot easier to ignore. Like, it was a lot easier to pretend that stalling my horse all the time was great when I wasn't faced with seeing the difference in my horse's temperament versus when he was being stalled and on small paddock turnout for half the day to 24-7 out in a herd. When I saw the difference that it made in his overall temperament, it was undeniable and it was eye-opening. And that was ultimately what really kind of started to shake my faith in the foundation that had been laid by all of the role models I had had thus far. But yeah, it's a really pervasive issue. And the problem is we have so many people who are frustrated because it's incredibly frustrating to have to relearn so many things and re-educate yourself when you've thought that you've been growing as a rider at a much quicker pace and being taught the right things and you've been constantly working to improve yourself but you've been improving yourself within the wrong parameters it's an incredibly shitty situation to be in to have to completely reevaluate that and change it and it's really really difficult but it is worth it and if we can make these changes on an industry-wide scale, everyone will benefit from it, but especially the horses. And what I want to do is make it easier for new riders and, like, up-and-coming riders to be taught things the right way and to have access to new information that will help them become better horse people so that they're not stuck in the cycle of being taught things incorrectly and carrying that with them for the entirety of their riding career and never learning to question it until it's too late. So that's what I hope to do with my platforms. And I've actually written a book about this whole process, including like a lot of like how I was taught growing up and like some of the worst aspects 
of how I was taught to handle horses in addition to like some of my thoughts on horse training and how to better the horse industry. And that book will be coming out in the next few weeks. I'll keep you guys posted for when that'll be. I'm not going to release the name of the novel yet or the cover, but if you're a Patreon, you'll already have seen. So if you subscribe to my Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, you can kind of get a sneak peek on that. And it'll be coming out in time for Christmas. So I'm very excited for that because it's a very honest outlook at my growing up. Um, with my childhood trauma in and outside of the horse world, in addition to all of the weird things I was taught to do to horses without questioning it and how that ultimately shaped what I accepted and allowed to happen to my horses for years to come. And I hope that it'll resonate with a lot of people because I think that's the thing is being able to admit where you were wrong and kind of get comfortable doing that and forgive yourself is very hard because a lot of people carry around massive guilt. But the problem is, since there's such a degree of misinformation, you really can't blame yourself because you're following instructions from people you trusted to be experts. And when you're taught things the wrong way and you carry that information with you for years to come because there's so many people teaching things the same way, you can't blame yourself for mistakes you make in that type of lifestyle. It's not your fault. It's the fault of the industry and industry standards and the lack of regulation. So don't feel guilty and don't beat yourself up, but do continue to grow and learn and share information and don't put so much trust into self-proclaimed professionals and upper-level riders because there isn't a positive correlation with good equine welfare and how many ribbons someone has won. There's no known correlation for that, so there's no reason for us to use that as a standard for what we value as good horsemanship and good horse care. But anyways, my book will go into a lot more detail on those very topics than what I have here, and I'm really excited for people to read that and kind of, yeah, I really hope you guys like it, and I hope that you'll be interested in purchasing the ebook or the real book um, and checking it out because I put a lot of work into it. It's been over a year now that I've been working on it. Um, I ended up rewriting it and adding like a part two to it to make it a little bit more personal. So it's like a memoir on how I grew up as an equestrian and just like mistakes that I've made over the course of my horse career and just like a really honest outlook on that. And, um, it was really cathartic to write and I hope it'll resonate with people. So anyways, thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in checking out my other socials or my pages, I'll have the links down in the description of this podcast and you can check out like my new product line the bridles i've released on my milestone equestrian.ca website on the shop milestone tab um you can also check out my patreon at patreon.com slash sd equus s-d-e-q-u-u-s you can also support the podcast and my business with like a one-time donation via paypal on paypal.me m-e slash milestone equestrian um, or buymeacoffee.com slash sdequist. Those are for like one-time things if you want to do that. And the proceeds just go towards helping me buy like podcasting equipment or stuff for the cameras or just continuing to like set up like filming and stuff and offer like the free educational content that I do. Because um, I think people underestimate how much time I actually put into this stuff, honestly. And it's a lot of free time, but I do it because I think it matters and I want to make the information accessible to people. And I also want to increase the accessibility of the horse world in general which is what I'm trying to move towards in developing my brand and my business. But first, I need to, like, develop my business to a point where I can not only take care of myself and 
continue in like business growth long term and meet those goals but I can also help other people with the revenue that I generate and I'm not quite there yet I want to be able to help more people than what I've been able to so far so supporting my shop page or subscribing to the patreon or shopping my merch website on shopmilestoneequestrian.com or sharing my YouTube videos, sharing the podcast, sharing my product announcements, all that stuff helps because really it's just about kind of catching fire and growing the business to a point where I have more flexibility to do the big things that I want to do and make the big changes that I want to do. I talk a little bit more about that and like long-term goals if I'm able to achieve my goals um, in the podcast before this one, like my how I built my dream barn podcast. I talk about like what my plans with that would be and like what I'd hope to achieve with that. If anyone is interested in checking that out, you can do that by going to my podcast and um, checking that out. Also, my podcast, for whatever reason, it won't upload on Spotify anymore because it's not got, like, not all my podcasts are MP3 piles. Some of them are M4A. So Spotify's kind of been a bit of a pain in the ass with that. So if you listen on Spotify, usually you might need to switch to Podbean to listen to my podcast temporarily or Apple Music while I try to sort that out um, or Google Podcasts. There's lots of other options. Um, so yeah, I apologize for any inconvenience, but I hope people still enjoy listening to my stuff and that it's helpful and that it resonates with you. And I really hope that you're, yeah, interested in checking out some of my products, my book, or any of the stuff that's going to be coming out in the future because, um, I'm really proud of some of the stuff that I've been putting out recently and it's been a labor of love. So I would really love to see people also loving the stuff that I have kind of created with my little brain and, um as I continue to try to develop my product line and the like. So thank you so much. Don't forget to check out those things. Oh, also, if anyone's interested in trying the supplements that I've been feeding my horses on since I fit, switched them to an all-forage diet, they're on Mad Barn Supplements. If you head to madbarn.com or .ca if you're Canadian, you can get a free diet analysis for your horse, and you can also get a discount on your order with my code SDEQUUS. I really like their products, and they brought huge changes to my horse's hoof health and overall health, so I've been really happy with them. Anyways, thank you everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the Making Milestones podcast. You can also check out my YouTube channel, Shelby Dennis, on YouTube. Um, and check out my Mustang vlogs and the other stuff I've been posting on there and share those. That always helps. Thank you so much again.